Hey everyone, and welcome to the Bethlehem Church of Christ podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope that today's message encourages and inspires you and helps you on your journey to discover and follow the will of God. The outline of this message, speaker, message title, and series can be found in the show notes or the details page. Be sure to check us out on Facebook or on our church website at Bethlehem505.com. And now, here is the message. All right, get out your sermon notes page and turn to Matthew chapter 16. You know, we've moved on from our series, Be Like Jesus, and last week we looked at some curious questions of Jesus. Uh, interestingly, the passage we're going to read in, in a few moments um, was read last week in a totally different context, but uh, it ties together who Jesus is and the importance of his church, uh, not only to him, but to us as well, as we consider that Jesus' church matters. Jesus' church matters. It's an old list, uh, top ten ways to know you're in the wrong church. All right, some of these are are a bit dated, but uh, I thought about altering some of them. But anyway, we'll just stick with the original list. Top ten ways to know you're in the wrong church. Number ten, the Bible used most often, is the Dr. Seuss version. And there's probably some church out there somewhere doing that, I don't know. Number nine, services or BYOS, bring your own snakes. Not here. Number eight, the choir wears leather robes. Seven, this is about my favorite. The preacher says, I'd like to ask Bubba to help take up the offering. Five guys and two women stand up. Six, the church bus has gun racks. Five, no cover charge, but communion is a two-drink minimum. Four, karaoke worship time. Three, the ushers ask, smoking or non-smoking? Two, you are quickly made aware through a glare and choice words that you can't sit there, that's my seat. And that's frustrating when people in churches do that. And number one, the... Only song the church organist knows is Take Me Out to the Ball Game. (laughs) All right, there are some things that would keep me from wanting to worship in certain churches. But I will never, ever give up on the church altogether. Friends, it has become tragically popular with many in our culture to mock and slam and discount the church. And here's the basic idea I hear all the time. God's okay. Jesus is cool. I like to be a good person, but I don't need the church. I hate organized religion. That is extremely popular right now. That's a very big bandwagon a lot of people are wanting to jump on. And I get that to a degree. It's obvious in the New Testament that Jesus was strongly opposed to any shallowness or emptiness or false teaching in his church. He despised hypocrisy, which we will talk about in a little bit. He loathed sin and died to remove it. 
However, however, it is a very dangerous leap to then assume that Jesus is therefore anti-church. I think Kevin DeYoung a few years ago expressed it well. I've printed this in our newsletter. You've heard me read this a number of times. But I think he's right on target. He said Jesus was a Jew. He went to services at the synagogue. He observed Jewish holidays. He founded the church. He established church discipline. He instituted a ritual meal. He told his disciples to baptize people and to teach others to obey everything he commanded. He insisted that people believe in him and believe certain things about him. And then he has this conclusion. If religion is characterized by doctrine, commands, rituals, and structure, then Jesus is not your go-to guy for hating religion. Amen. Listen to how Richard Beam expressed it. He said, those people who say, I love Jesus, but I have no use for the organized church, are saying in effect, I am too wise for the leadership of the church, I am too mature for the preaching, I am too pious for the worship, I am too self-sufficient for, for fellowship, and in summary, I am too good for the church. And then he says, the congregation is the beloved body of Christ, and those who love Christ love the church Warts and all. Folks, Jesus and his church are a package. And they will always be a package. Even though there is no perfect congregation on this planet. Let me share with you something. It's one of my favorite things I ever said about the church. It came on a little brochure I wrote a few years ago for the Christian Restoration Association called Who Needs the Church? And I said this in there. The church is part of a perfect plan from a perfect God, even though it is made up of imperfect people. And that's true of every congregation on this planet. Imperfect people. But real people. Honest people who are honest enough to admit that we need a Savior so we come to church. I want you to notice how Jesus connected himself once and for all time to his church. Matthew 16, um, Jesus is asking his uh, immediate followers what people are saying about him out on the street. And they give some of the answers they've heard. And then he turns the question on them in verse 15. We saw this last week. But what about you? Who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered him, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now that's at the foundation of all Christianity, but notice what Jesus says after that. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And here it is. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I want you to notice the phrase, Jesus says, my church. My church. You see, Jesus' image of the church was of a powerful, indestructible force, inseparable from himself. It's his church. The church belongs to Jesus, flaws and all. My flaws, your flaws, Bethlehem's flaws. 
and Jesus loves his church, flaws and all. Bottom line, Jesus' church matters. And I'm going to suggest on your outline this morning six reasons Jesus' church matters. First of all, Jesus' church is inseparable from him. Go ahead and flip over to Ephesians 5, a passage ironically about marriage, but he makes a connection with the church. See, Jesus' church is inseparable from himself because he purchased it, first of all, point A. Ephesians 5, 25 to 27, is in the context of marriage, but notice what it says in turn and in connection and comparison about marriage, or about the church. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Don't miss the phrase where it says Jesus gave himself up for his church. Paul was once talking to some church elders, and in Acts chapter 20, in verse 28, said this, Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, and notice this phrase, which he bought with his own blood. It sounds like Jesus is rather fond of his church, flaws and all. He purchased it with his own blood. So it's his church, not ours. We are part of it only because he purchased our freedom for us. He purchased it. But Jesus is also inseparable from his church because he's the foundation for it. If you go back to Ephesians chapter 2, you have one of my favorite passages and descriptions of the church. Starting in chapter 2, verse 19, it says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. All terminologies for his church. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Jesus and the apostles are the foundation of the church. 1 Corinthians 3 says there is no other foundation but him. But then thirdly, point C, Jesus built his church. Again, I go back to that phrase we read in Matthew 16. Jesus said, I will build my church. See, that phrase, my church, ought to send chills down the spines of those who try to rip Jesus apart from his church. When he says, it's my church. Jesus established his church in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, and even gave special miraculous powers that day to his apostles to show how important that day was and how important his church was. So the church is Jesus' bride, it's his body, and she wears his name. So friends, don't ever mock and criticize Jesus' bride. It's Jesus' bride. Jesus' church matters. Second reason Jesus' church matters is that Jesus' church offers light. I want you to flip back to Matthew 5, and, and we're going to look at something 
familiar there in just a minute. You know, throughout history, we have seen how very dark this sin-cursed world can be. And we see it increasingly right now in our culture. We see moral depravity. We see sexual sin and perversion. We see various forms of injustice. We see corruption uh, right now, frankly, throughout the government, throughout business, throughout big tech, throughout big pharma, big medicine. We see the promotion of abortion right up to birth pretty openly now. We see the widespread assault on God's design for male and female, which he ordained in the very first chapter of the Bible, and Jesus ordained again in Matthew 19. We see escalating crime and lawlessness. We see a massive border crisis that is empowering drug cartels and human traffickers and rapists who are basically running our southern border now. And this is increasingly a dark, dark world. But think for a moment, think for a moment how much darker this world would be without the pervasive influence of the Bible and Christian principles. Throughout the centuries on education and science and the arts and societal structure and human rights. Think of all the hospitals and schools and rescue missions and benevolent organizations have been begun by the followers of Jesus Christ in his name. And if you can remove all that influence, the world will be a far more brutal, evil, violent, dark place. So John 1.4 says of Jesus, in him was life and that life was the light of men. And then I want you to notice a progression. Uh, in John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus makes a statement about himself. It says, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, let me make a connection here. Jesus clearly says he's the light of the world. He is. But notice what he says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, verse 14 through 16. This one who was the light of the world says to his followers, Mark 5.14, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. See, the church is important to the world as a light. We, his followers, are to reflect his light and bring light into the world. So Jesus, church, matters. A third reason Jesus' church matters, and this is very connected with the light idea, Jesus' church offers answers. Now, people desire answers. People need answers. But a lot of people today have bought the devil's silly, naive lie that there are no definite answers anymore in life. There are no absolutes. There are no unchangeable truths and realities. The proper term for this is relativism. Relativism basically says that truth is relative and it's changing. What's true for you may not be true for me. And, and you have your truth, I have my truth. Uh, that's uh, Satan's, one of his favorite lies, one of his most effective right now in America. <laughs> uh, it all changes for particular times and people and places. Now, the result, if that's true, is that you have no good or bad, you have no right or wrong, you have no male or female, 
and the result is chaos. And that is Satan's goal. He loves chaos. <laughs> he loves disruption of institutions like marriage and church and all those things. And he loves to downplay the concept of truth. Now, my professor of the late, Dr. Jack Cottrell, wrote several years ago, and, it's, it, and I, that's important, several years ago, he said this. He said, this is what happens when relativism reigns supreme and if there is no such thing as truth. He says, here's what are the consequences. History can be rewritten at will. Schools can abandon fact-oriented curricula and focus on behavior modification. Teachers' views are no more correct than students. Parents' decisions are no more right than those of their children. No one's conduct can be criticized. Neither Hitler nor idol worshipers can be condemned. When you are ill, it really won't matter what medicine you take. See, if you say that there is no thing, such thing as absolute truth, anything goes, and the result is chaos. Now, during the prophet Isaiah's time, that was very prominent. It was a lot like America today, and Isaiah 520 thus becomes one of the most important verses in the United States of America today when it says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. But the Bible... God's book of truth, the guidebook of the church, offers answers. You see, Jesus said in John 8.32, you will know the truth, the truth, and the truth will set you free. Jesus believed there was such a thing as absolute truth. Jesus disagrees with relativism. He said there is truth, and it will set you free. So at this church, at this church... We try our best to ground absolutely everything we do and teach in biblical truth to offer life-changing answers to the skeptic, to the confused, to the wandering, to the searching. We keep seeking God's answers, and we try to share God's answers. Jesus' church matters. But Jesus' church matters for another connected reason. Jesus' church offers hope. I want you to flip over to Luke 13. We're going to read a passage over there in just a few minutes. Folks, this building, this building is not the answer. You and I are not the source of hope. But the church of Jesus points to where the hope is. Other places, other organizations can offer education and food and wholesome programs and good relationships. You can find those things other places. And the church can and should offer those things as well. But ultimately, the one thing the church can uniquely offer the world is to point people to Jesus Christ. That's the one thing we have to do, even if we do all these other things. And that was Jesus' point on one of the last things he said to his 12 followers, or 11 at that point, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, what we call the Great Commission. Then Jesus came to them and said... All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. It's all truth, in other words. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Variation in Mark chapter 16 of the same thing. He said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Whoever does not believe 
will be condemned. Forgiveness and salvation is what the church can uniquely offer the world that no other good organization can offer. In Luke's gospel, there's this idea over and over again about all people of all kinds coming to Jesus. In Luke 13, verse 29, it says, just as Jesus talking, people will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. In Luke chapter 19, Jesus was with a very corrupt uh, man named Zac uh, Zacchaeus. And after Zacchaeus uh, comes to Jesus, it says this, Jesus said to him, uh, this is Luke 19, 9 and 10. Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save what was lost. Jesus' church is to offer hope to all people in all nations so that sinners can find and experience life-changing forgiveness through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And also... So hypocrites can come here and find and experience reality in a sinless Savior and then receive help and support to live a life consistent with the message of the Bible. And speaking of hypocrites, quite a few times through the years, and I know you've heard me say this off and on, quite a few times through the years, I have had some critics who are anti-church say to me, and some variation of this, well, the reason, the reason I don't go to church is that I've known too many hypocrites that go to church. And usually they're, the pompous way they say it is kind of like, I gotcha, preacher, but you'll have an answer for that one. Now, the sarcastic side of me, because <laughs> I can tend to be sarcastic, I try to keep it under control, but the sarcastic side of me wants to respond to that person Wow, never heard that one before. That's original. Okay, you win. <laughs> and another part of me wants to respond, hypocrites in the church? Um, duh. <laughs> and I bet there are sick people in hospitals too. And I bet there are alcoholics and Alcoholics Anonymous. Absolutely there are sinners and hypocrites in every single church, obviously. But here's the point. Bethlehem is a gathering of sinners who are humble enough and honest enough to admit that we are not perfect, so we need a Savior, and that's why we're here. See, we are all here trying to get our act together more completely and rejoice that God and others can help us do that. So bring on the sinners. Bring on the hypocrites. We want them at Bethlehem. <laughs> Jesus' church matters because it offers hope to sinners like me. Jesus' church matters. But Jesus' church also matters because it is a support network. Now, ideally, the church is a place of hope and a place of love and a place of acceptance and support. In other words, and you can write this in on your outline, Jesus intends his church to be a place to live out the one another commandments of the New Testament. Do you realize that more than 50 times 
these phrases that use the word one another come up in the New Testament, where we're told to honor one another, love one another, forgive one another, accept one another, bear one another's burdens, bear with each other, pray for one another, live, with harmony, uh, live in harmony with one another, confess your sins to one another, admonish one another, teach one another, encourage one another. More than 50 times those pop up in the New Testament. And the church is meant to be by Jesus a place where we live out the one another's. And that includes, when we're here on Sunday mornings, that includes especially things like the picnic tonight where you can do the one another's a lot better than you can in this room. And then the church becomes a great haven for the outcast and the downcast and the weary and the burdened and the hurting and the defeated when we become that kind of church that lives out the one another's. And that's the whole point of that brochure I wrote a few years ago, Who Needs the Church? And there's copies in the you if you want to grab one, because it lists all these different things that we ought to be offering and we ought to be, and that's why we all need the church. So let's be that kind of church. Let's take the time to listen and observe and speak and touch and make eye contact with each other. And let's not race out the doors like five minutes is going to make all the difference in the world that we have to get right out to our car. Conversations and sharing life are extremely important. And that's why our picnic today is so important for the body of Christ as we try to emulate Acts chapter 2, the last verses. So let's be God's ordained support network because Jesus' church matters. And finally, Jesus' church matters because Jesus' church is a mission. Jesus' church is not a club. It is not a mere organization like 4-H or Lions Club or Farm Bureau. <clears throat> the church is to be God's ambassador to reconcile the world to Him. We do not just come here for the support or encouragement or answers or light. We come here to report for duty. And somehow in the American church, we've really missed that in recent years. We come here to report for duty. God, here I am. What do you need me to do? Can you imagine how different Bethlehem would be and how different we would be in Adams and Brown counties? And way beyond that, if every Sunday you and I would walk in here and say, God, what do you need me to do? It's your mission. I'm not here to sit and watch. What do you need me to do? So the process, I think, is supposed to work something like this. Point A, we come and we worship. That's, that's the main focus. Together we approach the king. We approach the Lord. We approach our boss, our master. We honor him. We thank him. We remember Jesus' sacrifice during the Lord's Supper. We pray, we sing, we repent of our sins. We renew our commitment to him and to his mission and obviously, we can do all those things alone, but they all take on a new power and significance when we do them together. And then once we've truly been in the presence of God, point A, the next thing can happen. We grow. 2 Peter 3.18, the last thing Peter said in his second epistle, when he says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. In other words, we come here, we worship, and as a result, we grow in prayer. We grow in our knowledge of God and the Bible. We grow in our faith. We grow in our Christ-likeness. 
Growth is an integral part of life. You think about it, we, when we plant crops, we intend for them to grow. When babies are born, we intend for them to grow. When you and I are born again, God expects us to grow. And that growth comes a lot easier together by you and me helping each other in our growth and in our becoming more like Christ. That's why three of my favorite verses in all the Bible are Hebrews 10, 23 to 25, where it says, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, 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 as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. And then we become more equipped, once that happens, for the mission. So point C, we serve. We worship, we grow, we serve. We worship, we grow, we serve. It's not just the first two. Bethlehem is not a club, like I said. We are a team with a God-ordained mission. We serve to help carry out that mission. We donate our time to help carry out that mission. We give financially to God to help carry out that mission. We love and support others to carry out that mission. We sacrifice ourselves to carry out that mission. So if you are looking for a nice place to hang out and coast along and get religion, Bethlehem is not the church for you. This is a mission. We're not here to do church or fill up a couple hours of your week so you can check off your list, went to church, and I can go do the rest of my life. But if you want to commit your heart and soul and time and treasure to the mission of Jesus, we're glad you're here. And you've come to the right place. So roll up your sleeves, get out of your seat, and report for duty, not because you have to, but because you appreciate what God has done for you, and you want to serve him, and you want to be like Jesus, and you want to be the church. You want to be the church. God, what do you need me to do? What do you need me to do? I included something in our church newsletter the other day. It's not original with me. Josh Daffern, in an online article, entitled his article this, this way. He said, if you're not, quote, being fed at your church, maybe you're approaching church wrong. And then he says this, the way many of us approach a church is like a cruise ship. When you walk on board a cruise ship, you expect to be entertained, you expect good food and good service, you expect leisure. If you don't get that, if the service is bad, if the entertainment is not entertaining enough, you go find another cruise ship. Folks, that is the American church right now. I know, I know multiple people, I've been around this area long enough, who have been part of one, two, three, four, five, six churches in the time I've been at Bethlehem. He goes on to suggest this. He says, a better approach is to see the church as a battleship, where he explained. When you walk on board, the expectation isn't to sit, but to serve. You realize you're part of a greater mission, and your mindset is to find a way to contribute however you can. If you complain on a battleship, it's not because the food is bad or because there's no entertainment. A valid complaint on a battleship would be that there's no meaningful way for you to serve. End of quote. Friends, cruises are nice 
temporary diversions, but they're not meant to be a way of life. And any time the church becomes like a cruise ship, the church has forsaken the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus called us to so much more, to creatively, wisely find ways to fulfill the mission. And that involves evaluating and doing things differently sometimes to be more effective. It's really old, but I'll read it again. My church is composed of people like me. We make it what it is. It will be friendly if I am. Its seats will be filled if I help fill them. It will do great work if I work. It will make generous gifts to many causes if I am a generous giver. It will bring other people into its worship and fellowship if I bring them. It will be a church of loyalty and love, of fearlessness and faith, and a church with a noble spirit if I, who make it what it is, am filled with these traits. Therefore, with the help of God, I shall dedicate myself to the task of being all the things I want my church to be. It's so easy for us to say, I wish our church was this, or I wish our church was this. Well, lead the way then. <laughs> lead the way. So we can be the church with our giftedness where we serve a God that we love, that who loved us immensely, gave his life for us, and we are simply saying, thank you. Now what do you want me to do, God? What do you want me to do? Bottom of your page asks a question. Will I be an active partner with Jesus and others in fulfilling the church's mission? See, how you and I answer that question is going to go a long way to what this church becomes. Will I be an active partner with Jesus and others in fulfilling the church's mission? The song we're going to sing today is simply entitled Surrender. Love this song, but it's, it's, it's serious. <laughs> it's really serious about saying, I, I surrender. All to you, I surrender. So would you please stand and let's think about what surrender means in our life today. And, and maybe that question, what do you want me to do, God? Maybe it's confessing our faith in him and repenting of our sins and giving your life to him for the very first time and burying our old life in the water grave of baptism and saying, I belong completely to him. That old life's gone and dead and buried. Or maybe you just need to recommit yourself to that and say, I want my church to be such and such, so therefore I'm going to do this. Let's answer God's call today. Let's be the church he wants us to be, fulfill the mission he has called us to as we respond. Thank you for listening to the Bethlehem Church of Christ podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and think others can benefit from it, we encourage you to share it on social media, subscribe to our podcast, or leave us a rating and review on the podcast platform you use. You can also connect with us online at Bethlehem505.org or find us on Facebook. Please join us next time as we each seek to understand God's Word and follow His Son, Jesus Christ.